First Peter chapter one is where we're beginning in verse one. And it says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, in Galatia, in Cappadocia, in Asia and in Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God, the father in the sanctification of the spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. So as many of you know, I have been uh, recuperating with my wife uh, on vacation and a few of our kids at, at different times, they kind of were in and out on our vacation, but we, we uh, rested uh, during that time. And, and so I feel kind of ready to get back to doing this. A couple of people were very kind this morning and said, glad to have you back. And I said, I hope I remember how this is done. So we already screwed up the dismissal of the children. So no telling where we're going to go this morning. But I want to, I want to take this time really to, to genuinely, deeply from my heart. I want to thank Randy Daniel for stepping in the first week. Can we give Randy a hand? He did a, he did a, a fantastic job. And, um, I, I still am amazed at, uh, at what he did and, and the, the creativity with which he brought the word um, uh, on uh, a couple weeks ago. And so I'm really grateful for that. And I also want to say the same for Pastor David. Um, he kicked off our series that we're going to be continuing today, this series called What We Believe. And it's a, it's a basis of, uh, uh, you know, uh, just helping you to understand that the, the 10 fundamental things that we all agree on in belief here at Northridge Life Church. And so I'm always grateful for Pastor David and his very skillful handling the word. Aren't you? Let's give Pastor David a hand this morning. Um, I also would be remiss if I didn't mention a couple of other very special people in my life, one of them being my wife, the most special person in, in my life, and, and then uh, Pastor David's wife, Katie, um, and then Jason back here, who our keyboard player. Um, this week, they took a bunch of children to kids camp and uh, just uh, did all that's involved in taking kids to kids camp, and I got to go up there Wednesday night and see what was going on, and they, they all had a great time and uh, uh, really refreshed. I talked to Pastor Pastor David uh, later this week, and I said, "How's Katie doing?" She says she slept like a rock. So anyway, so apparently she did her job well uh, while she was there. So thank you guys for doing that, being a part of that. Um, so, so we're we're talking about the ten things, the ten fundamental beliefs that we as Northridge Life Church have agreed are biblical doctrine that are that are orthodox that that are what should be believed now. Um, we have copies that look kind of like this. We have copies um, in the foyer. If you want to have those 10 things to look at and, and to, to look over, then you can do that. But this week, last week, we talked about the scriptures with Pastor David. And this week, we're going to talk about the Trinity, this idea that God is one being with three distinct persons. So what I wanted to, to, to do to begin with is I just want to read you what our statement of belief Says So if you would just read this along, we're going to have this on the screen for you. If you'd read this along with me, um, this is what we, we have, have said. We believe in one living and true God, infinite, almighty, perfect in holiness, truth and love, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that these are co-equal in every divine perfection and that they execute distinct but harmonious offices in the work of creation, providence, and redemption. 
And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, the most fundamental answer that we could give, not just to any single question, but to every single question ever asked is this, God is. That is the most fundamental answer to any question that any person could ever formulate. God is. He exists. He is real. He is the wellspring and origin of all life, all creativity, all truth in all of the universe. This means that all life is God's life. That all creation is God's creation. And that all truth is God's truth. Amen? No life, no creation, no truth exists outside of which God is omnipotently observant and, and, and over and over. He, he is the Lord of all of those things. But if God's existence is the answer, a question must arise. And that question is this. What is God? What is God? Demographically, only 7% of the world's population, only 7% denies belief in any deity or spiritual power whatsoever. They are considered convinced atheists, only 7%. And that means that 93% of us believe in some form of higher power, some form of God. But that 93%, this is where the rub is that 93% of us do not agree as to the nature of whatever being, whatever force, whatever power is out there above and beyond us. Have you found that to be true? That there, when you use the word God as the identity of something, that can mean a whole lot of different things in our culture, right? Amen. Correct? So... The question for us is, can we know which one of these belief systems is right? Or are they all just versions of the same thing? Okay. Well, Pastor David helped us with this last week. See, see true Christians derive all information about spiritual realities only from the Holy Scriptures. We do not have another source to define these things for us. We only have the Bible. That's it. And we only look to the Bible. Pastor Dave taught us last week about the uniqueness, about the authority of God's word. And we came to this conclusion that we can trust the Bible. I'm so glad for the three of you that agree with that. I said that Pastor Dave helped us to understand that we can trust the Bible. Fully, completely, from Genesis to Revelation, every word, every punctuation mark, we trust the Bible. So the question to be answered this morning is this. What does the Bible tell us about what God is like? What do we find there when we open its pages? Well, in the fourth century, this question was made incredibly prominent because of various competing explanations concerning the nature of God that had emerged. They included a belief called Arianism, which stated that Jesus was a created being. He was less than God, but he was more than man. See, Jehovah's Witnesses still hold to a version of this. 
There was also a belief called Sibelianism, or more commonly known as modalism. And modalism taught that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were essentially the same one person with no real distinction from one another. And you'll still find this among oneness Pentecostals, as they're commonly known. The church, recognizing these positions as doctrinal aberrations, as not orthodox at all, held a series of councils to, art, to, to articulate what it is that the Bible actually teaches about the nature of God. They, they were examining what the Bible taught and stating it clearly. I want to make that clear. They were not trying to make up a doctrine. They weren't saying, well, what should we believe on this? No, they took the scriptural evidence and they tried to define it and state it clearly, uh, in, you know, what the Bible taught about the nature of God. And, and the thing you need to know is this process was not quick. They didn't meet on Friday night and adjourn by Saturday. In fact, this process took the better part, brace yourself, of 100 years trying to figure out this question. During this process, the scriptures were thoroughly examined. Every word in the original language was scrutinized and every argument was meticulously defended or meticulously repudiated. And by the end of the process, three particular creeds, three statements of what the church, the Orthodox church believes about God were issued. And they're commonly referred to as the Nicene Creed the Constantinopolitan Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. Each one of them progressively clarified the nature of God and particularly that of the Trinity or the Godhead. And, and, the, and in addition to that, they kind of explained how the, 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 uh, the incarnation and the divinity of Christ worked. Now, if you're interested, that's what I held up earlier, we have a copy of the Athanasian Creed so you can see for yourself what the church has always believed about the Trinity right here. Um, and we have it in the foyer um, for you if you'd like that after church. Um, over the next few weeks, what we're going to be doing, this is going to be kind of like a, a mini series within the larger series. We're going to be talking about the unique distinctions of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit individually. But this morning, we're just going to discuss what the Bible teaches about the Trinity, as we call it, generally. The conclusion of the 4th century councils, these councils that took 100 years that I told you about, can be communicated, 100 years of work can be communicated in just three short statements. 100 years of work to come up with three short statements. And this is, this is the statements. We're going to examine each one of them in turn biblically. First, God is three persons. Second, each person is fully God. And lastly, there is one God. Even for Bible-believing Christians committed to the truth of those three statements, this has proven not just difficult, but literally impossible to understand. Why? Why is it impossible to understand? Because if it's true, this idea of three being one and subsequently of one being three defies anything that you or I have ever known in the created order. Over the years, people have come up with different analogies. Well, he's kind of like this or kind of like that. I'm not even sharing those with you this morning because all of them fail miserably to capture the mystery of this truth. 
That they're, that, that, that this idea that God is one being who, who just works through three individual distinct persons is just too big for our minds to understand. Amen? So too often what we do is we're tempted to oversimplify it with our little analogies or we just discard it altogether. But we mustn't do either one of those things. Just because something, listen to me carefully, because this will come up over and over again as you study biblical theology. Just because something is difficult or even impossible to understand doesn't mean it's not true. Okay, let me give you an example. The Bible teaches that God is eternal. That means not only that God will last forever. Some of us think we have a... Uh, an idea of that, but we don't. If you could calculate in your mind and understand the concept of a trillion, trillion years, eternity teaches us that that is not a drop in a bucket. It's not the equivalent of a mere second when you're talking about forever. Now, can you understand that? Can you get your head around that? But that's not even where this difficulty, this impossibility shows up the worst. God also, being eternal, had no beginning. Oh, I'm just waiting for that to sink in just a little bit. Now, as soon as you understand that, stand up and explain it to me. God had no beginning. There was no origin point. There was no point where God wasn't and then he was. God is eternal forever. Do you believe that? Okay, so you've just demonstrated your ability to believe something that is impossible to understand. Everybody with me? Doesn't mean that's not true. But we have to believe that what God has revealed himself, uh, has revealed about himself in the, uh, in the scripture is true. We have to believe the trustworthiness that he's demonstrated for all time as a God who cannot lie. Isaiah 55, 9 says it best. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And I would just ask you, aren't you glad? Man, if we had a God that that had equal thoughts to mine, you guys would be in mucho trouble. Big time trouble. So let's examine these one by one. Statement one, God is three distinct persons. This means that the Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the uh, Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. That means that they are distinct. This truth is clearly seen in the Scriptures at the baptism of Jesus Christ. You'll remember as Christ the Son was coming up out of the water, the Father speaks from heaven, and the Spirit descends upon Him. Now, they're distinct. Think about this, the Spirit isn't being baptized and he doesn't speak. The father isn't being baptized and he doesn't descend. And the son neither speaks nor descends. This distinction is is shown like this all throughout scripture. Three distinct persons. For example, the father speaks audibly from heaven, not only at Jesus' baptism, but also at his transfiguration. And then a third time in John chapter 12, in the same week that Jesus would be crucified. If the father was not distinct, now let this, let this thought get in your head. If the father was not distinct from the son, that would mean that Jesus Christ pulled off an amazing act of ventriloquism. 
if he just threw his voice up there into heavens and said, this is my beloved son. (laughs) But that is not what happened. That's not what happened. The father, distinct from the son, spoke his approval over the son. Also, Christ says that both he in one place and the father in another place will send the Holy Spirit after his ascension in John 16. If there were no distinction between them, why would he just not say, I'll send myself in the form of the spirit? It's not what he said. He said, but I'm going up there and we together are going to send him down here. That's what he said. In John 17 and other places, Jesus does this other thing if they're not distinct that would make no sense. He prays to the Father. Why would he do that if they were the same person and not distinct? We're told in Romans 8 as well that the Spirit intercedes to uh, or for us to the Father. They have to be distinct. Anyone with a rational, logical mind can see that modalism, I mentioned it earlier, it's that belief that God is one person, one person acting at different times in various modes, is a heretical and unbiblical teaching. It's based on the belief, listen, it's based on the belief that God moves in different ways at different points in history. It's almost like he puts on a costume. Now I'm the Father, now I'm the Son, now I'm the Holy Spirit. That is not what Scripture teaches us. It's based on this, this, this belief that, that he changes, but the Bible says that the Lord doesn't change. And, and this is, this is the, this is the other thing. There, there's multiple times in scripture, like at the baptism, where all three persons show up at the same time. What do you do with that? Look at this from the book of Acts. Acts 10.38, Peter is talking to a bunch of Gentiles and he, and he describes the ministry of Jesus like this. He says, how God, what? How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. What's that next word? With the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God, what? God was with him. Now, now think about what you just read. God anointed Jesus. That means that God acted upon the Son as distinct from himself. And he anointed him, how? With the Holy Spirit. He lavished the Holy Spirit, distinct from himself. One was poured out. The other one was being poured out. And who did he pour it out on? On the Son. On Christ, a third person that was distinct from the other two. What do you do with that? If you if you approach this from a modalistic frame of mind, you can't do it. Have we established that? Okay, good. So we'll move on to statement two. Statement two, each person of the Trinity is fully God. See, what this truth does, it helps us to understand that all of God's attributes are equally true of all three persons, for each person is truly, each person of the Trinity is truly and fully God. Now, notice those two key words. Each person is truly and each person is fully God. Few people wrestle with the fact that the Father is God. In fact, most people commonly interchange the title God and the title Father. They just interchange those. But difficulty often arises with grasping the divine nature of the Son and of the Spirit. Are they God? And if so, if they are God, are they equal to God the Father? Y'all sound hesitant. Let me help you. What do the scriptures say about the divinity of the Son of God? You could nail it all down right here. John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. 
And the word was with God. Read that last phrase. And the word was God. It's absolutely clear that in this passage, John is saying that that the word is Christ. He says it again in 1 John 1, 1 as well. But the word is Christ. He's saying that the word was God. Paul just slam dunks this point in Colossians 2, 9 when he says, For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. Now, if the whole fullness of God dwells in Christ, what part doesn't dwell in Christ? Help me out here. If the whole fullness, Scripture tells us, dwells in Christ, and Scripture's our authority, what part doesn't dwell in Christ? None of it. In John chapter 20, I love this. After the risen Christ appears to Thomas, his disciple, for the first time, who had doubted that he was even resurrected. He appears to Thomas for the first time. And Thomas's reaction to seeing and touching the resurrected Lord for the first time is to fall to his knees in worship. And he directly addresses the Lord Jesus with these words. My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. And Jesus never said, whoa, 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 get up, Thomas. Get up. I'm not God. No. What Jesus does is is he takes the right of God and he just receives the worship of Thomas. Now, is Jesus blaspheming there? Of course not. Because Jesus is God. Jesus permitted this act of worship as the almighty, eternal, all-powerful God. So what do the scriptures say about the divinity of the Holy Spirit? Let me give you this little bit of evidence. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, a couple of early church people in the, in the early church, they sell a piece of property in order to give some of the proceeds to the fledgling church. And because their, their motivation is that's what everybody's doing, and they don't want to be doing what less, less than what other people are doing. So that's what they do. They, they, they sell this piece of property, but when they sell it, they begin to regret their decision and they think, oh man, that's a lot of money. Maybe we should hold some of that back. And so they do. They hold back, which was their right to do, but they lie and they tell the church and its leaders that they gave all of it. They, they said, oh yeah, that's it. That's all of it. And they did that in order to look good. But guess what? The Holy Spirit exposes their wickedness to the apostle Peter. He he, he shines a light on it. And listen to what Peter says when he confronts him. Listen to this. Peter says this, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to whom? To the Holy Spirit. But then watch, verse 4, you have not lied to man, but to... So who is the Holy Spirit? See what I'm doing there? See that? See it in the scripture? But that's not it. 2 Corinthians 3.17. Paul says this to the Corinthians church. Now, the Lord is the spirit. Now, according to Wayne Grudem, who's a Bible scholar, wrote a systematic theology a lot of people use. Wayne Grudem said this. He said, a good argument can be made from grammar and context to say that this verse is better translated with the Holy Spirit as the subject. In other words, now the spirit is the Lord. In this case, Paul would be saying that the Holy Spirit is also Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. But if both Christ and the Spirit are fully and equally God, and we agree that they are, right? 
If both Christ and the Spirit are fully equally God, that doesn't re- remove all the difficulties for us. So, Because how do we then account for the submission that we often see portrayed in Scripture in relation that they have in relation to each other right there in the Bible? And we see it. It's right there. So three people equal fully God wind up submitting, three persons rather, wind up submitting to each other. For example, why is Jesus so often described in the New Testament, and it's often, as submitting to and obeying the Father if he is also fully God? And why does the Scripture say that the Holy Spirit will bear witness to Christ, in other words, point away from himself to Christ, glorify Christ, declare what is Christ in John 15 and 16, instead of glorifying himself if he's God? A little difficult, isn't it? Let's create a little speed bump for us on this Trinitarian freeway we're traveling down. But here's what I want you to to see. Because we think in worldly terms, we think in terms of rank. He's first, he's second, he's third. But it's it, 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 it seems so problematic because if the Son and the Spirit aren't fully God, then they can't be God at all. Have you ever considered that? There's no such thing as nine-tenths God. You either is or you ain't. For example, if they were created beings, the Son and the Spirit were created beings, even very powerful ones, they could not be God. They couldn't. Why? Why? Because created things are not eternal, like I talked about earlier. All created things have some origin point. An eternal nature is something that is clearly declared a father, son, and spirit all throughout Scripture. Also, if they were eternal but subordinate, in other words, if they, we, could, we could satisfy the eternity requirement, and yet we found this kind of subordination, this second-class rank and the third-class rank, that would be a problem. Why? Because they couldn't be God, because the Bible tells us that God is perfect and less than God as I already mentioned, equals less than perfect. So we can conclude that the subordination that we see, and we do see it, between the persons of the Godhead is, is a subordination of role, of, of, of what they, their function, what their purpose, what their, what their work is. It's a subordination of role, but not ever in essence. In other words, they, they, they submit to one another, they subordinate to each other, but it's a part of their role of what they're trying to accomplish together and never in their essence. In other words, another, another way that Wayne Gruden puts it is this way. The only distinctions between the members of the Trinity are in the ways that they relate to each other and to the creation. In other words, they are equal in being, but subordinate in role. So here's how that works. The son submits to the father, but in order to please him and bring about his glory and to bring about his purposes, the spirit constantly points to Jesus to glorify him and to expand his kingdom. And all of this submission, all of this obedience is motivated by one thing, by perfect, inexplicable, eternal love. That's what motivates the son to submit to and obey his, his father. That's what, uh, that's what motivates the spirit to, to, to freely testify of the power and the glory of Jesus is because they love each other on a level that we can never understand fully. 
And this leads us to our next statement. And quite frankly, sometimes if you agree with the first two, this becomes the hardest statement. Statement three is this. There is one God. There is one God. When we talk about the Father, Son, and the Spirit, we're not talking about three gods. We're talking about one God. So how can three distinct persons with three distinct roles be understood as one being? While this is admittedly beyond our ability to understand perfectly, the love that I just mentioned that exists in the Trinity is our very best place to begin. You see, for all of eternity past, that, that time since the no beginning that we talked about that goes forever as far back as it can go forward, for all of that eternity past, God has never, ever existed in isolation. God before he created angels, before he created animals, before he created people, before he created anything, God has never been alone. Never. Never. He's never been alone. Do you think that's one reason why he works through close community? He creates the man. He said, well, he shouldn't be alone. So he creates a woman. And the Bible says that those two separate beings should come together and become what? One flesh. He loves working through community. That's why Christ died and rose again, not merely to save us as individuals, but to build a worldwide multi-ethnic church. Because God is real into this community thing. Real into it. Because God is perfect, the community of the Godhead is perfect. The great preacher A.W. Tozer said this better than anyone, I think. He said this. He said, The persons of the Godhead, being one, have one will. They they work always together. And never one smallest act is done by one without the instant acquiescence of the other two. Every act of God is accomplished by trinity in unity. See, God did not create you or me or anything else because he was lonely. God wasn't sitting there up in heaven saying, it's been trillions of years, I'm so bored, let's make some people. <laughs> never did it. He never did it. He is experienced. Think about this. Let your mind try to wrap around this. God, the triune God, has experienced perfect love, perfect harmony, perfect pleasure within himself for all eternity. He did not need us. We are the result of a love that could not be contained. But the different persons of the Trinity are not simply one in their purpose and their agreement. We're, we don't, we're not one because we agree with each other is what the Trinity would say. But they're one in their in essential nature. God is only one being. The Bible attributes every one of his activities, every single one of them revealed in Scripture, as a perfect, unified act of one God, working through three distinct persons. I mean, you can find Scripture to back all of this up. I didn't take time this morning, but I can do it if you want me to do it. Three distinct persons, one purpose over and over again. We see that in creation. The God, the triune God, not just God the Father, uh, created the, the universe. We see that in the deliverance of Israel out of Egyptian slavery to the resurrection of Christ. Did you know the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all separately attributed with the, with the act of raising Christ from the dead? Did you know that? Every single one of them. And now, 
guess what? The subsequent redemption of you and I is also attributed to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. But it would be an egregious heresy. Everybody, I hope, would agree with this. It would be an egregious heresy to say that all of these things I just mentioned were accomplished by three gods working in concert with each other. Because the Bible nowhere supports that position. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, the, the Israelites were, were told to make this proclamation on a daily basis. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Solomon says in 1 Kings 8.60, he says that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other There's not two others. It's not even one other. There is no other God. There is one God. In the New Testament, Paul asserts the same thing in Romans 3.30, 1 Corinthians 8.6, 1 Timothy 2.5, and James does it as well in James 2.19. This is the deepest mystery concerning the Trinity. But if we are committed to God's word, like Pastor David encouraged us last week, we must believe by faith that there is one God eternally existing in three persons without denying or diminishing any part of his attributes. But here's, so everybody learned some theology today. You're one step closer to your seminary degree. But, but here's, here's what I want to ask you. So let me back up just a second. Do we all agree with the three statements? Do we believe that, that, um, that God exists in three distinct persons? Do we agree with that? Do we agree that each one of those persons is fully God? Do we, do we agree that there is only one God? Okay, good, good. We're all great certified Trinitarians now. So what? So what? Why does that matter? Why do we care? There's a lot of facts that are true that don't have any bearing on my life whatsoever. Why does this doctrine of the Trinity even matter? Because, brothers and sisters, the entire gospel of redemption hangs on this one doctrine. Does it make a difference whether you believe it or not? Oh yeah. Because the everything else, everything else that the scripture says about how you are saved hangs on what I just told you. Everything. Can I prove it? I hope so. Consider the most famous verse in all of Scripture. Consider it for just a minute. You guys know what it is. John 3.16 says this. You could say it without even being on the screen, but it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Notice the verbs in that passage. Is still up there? Okay. Notice the verbs in that passage. Loved, gave. These verbs... In this passage, take a look at them and think for a moment about what they tell us. If God were one person, this wouldn't make any sense at all. None, no sense whatsoever. But it tells us that the one God's, that, that the one God's perfect eternal love compelled him. The one God's perfect eternal love to compelled him to sacrificially give that which was by far most precious to him, one that was distinct from him and to give him for the sake of poor, helpless sinners. Now listen, 
there are a lot of men in this room that would willingly, without a moment's hesitation, give up their lives for a noble cause. Many of you have served in the military. You, you were prepared for that eventuality when you served in the military. You'd give up your life in a heartbeat for a noble cause, for your family, for the, the glory of God. Whatever it is, you would give up your life. Many of you would do so heroically. But who in here, who in here would willingly volunteer the life of their own child for the same cause? Does the Trinity matter? Who would do that? Who would volunteer their child to be slaughtered for someone else, let alone for the benefit of those so vile, so undeserving as this old world of sinful people. Does Trinity matter? See, it's only in the reality of a triune God that we can ever understand the magnitude of what the Father did for your salvation. He didn't sacrifice himself, but instead he watched as his perfect, righteous, innocent son was torn apart for the benefit of the ungrateful wretches that killed him. But what does the Trinity tell us about the Holy Spirit in light of this gospel? That the Son, distinct from the Father and the Spirit, took on human flesh in order to fulfill the redemptive purposes of the one God. He remains to this day, as Paul calls him, the man, Jesus Christ, yet fully God. He reigns right now at this very second at God's right hand. But God's primary redemptive purpose for us is that we would forever dwell with him. He said, they will be my people and I will be their God. That we would forever dwell with him and that he would be with us. And something, this before Jesus, this was not possible because of our sin. And since God the Father is enthroned in the highest heaven and the glorified God-man is reigning at his side, this unending fellowship with God is accomplished through the agency of his Holy Spirit. John fourteen seventeen. I love this. Jesus reminds his followers about the Holy Spirit and his coming. And he says that he dwells with you and he will be in you. Did you know that every bit, all the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus? Did you know that all the fullness of the Godhead through the agency of the Holy Spirit has come to dwell in you? If you're a believer. Paul said, Paul said, marvel at this. He said, marvel at this. Do you not know that your body is the very temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God who is in you? Boy, that puts a different spin on it, doesn't it? Does the Trinity matter? Does the Trinity matter? His presence, the presence of God through the Holy Spirit allows us to be comforted, convicted, instructed, transformed, enlightened, and empowered. Do you see how important the Trinity is to your salvation and the life of a believer? If this one doctrine, please get this, why it's the first after we say the scriptures are true this is why we start with the trinity because if this one doctrine were not true every other single doctrine would crumble under the weight of the scriptures and make no cohesive sense whatsoever none whatsoever 
The verse that we read at the beginning from 1 Peter is one of the several where the apostles state the unique and mysterious inner workings of the triune Godhead. Peter says that we were elected to be recipients of grace by three different actions of God, the triune God. First, we were elected to be recipients of grace according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And what this means is that God the Father's eternal design, even before creation, was always to bring glory to himself by lavishing love on each one of us who would believe. But he says that we were elected to be recipients of grace in the sanctification of the Spirit. And this means that God the Holy Spirit's role, it's talking about his role in both initially converting us, initially waking us up to new life, as well as how he gradually and continuously transforms us into the image of Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad? And then lastly, he says that we were elected for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And this speaks of God's exalting of Christ by raising up a holy nation of obedient people for him as Lord of all, accomplished by his death and sin-destroying perfect sacrifice on the cross. May we, may we as a people, may we be a people who not only believe the Trinity as it's expressed in Scripture, but that will marvel in the majesty of what it means for our salvation and thereby be prompted to unending worship. We're about to receive the Lord's Supper. And I want to ask you this morning, to do this, there are a lot of times that we do different things um, in preparing your hearts to receive the supper. But I just hopefully made a, a convincing case, hopefully for you, of why this matters. So what I would like to encourage you to do this morning, as you come to the table before we're dismissed, is I would like to ask you if you would just... Prepare your hearts right now to thank God, to trust God, to, to just believe Him that, that this matters. Like I said, that this, this, uh, this truth about the Trinity matters and that, that it matters for your salvation. That, that's what we want to go for this morning. And so if you would just stand with me, I want to ask you as, as, uh, Jason plays for just a minute or two, I want you to just, um, not, you know, a lot of times we come in here and we talked a little bit about this in the prayer meeting this morning, but I want you to not worry about, well, I'm this or I'm that, or my week was like this or like, was like that. Can I just tell you a lot of times that's just another way to express our own selfishness that we're thinking about us in a time when our, when our attention should be turned outward to Jesus. And so I want you to just do this. I'm going to encourage every one of you in here to just do this. Just everybody close your eyes, bow your heads. This isn't some weird mystical thing preachers do. It's just because I want you to be alone with God right now. Every one of you, bow your heads, close your eyes. And I want you to consider the inner workings of Father, of Son, of Holy Spirit. And I want you to just take a moment. And and from maybe for the first time this week, maybe for the first time this month, maybe for the first time this year, or maybe for the first time in your life, I just want you to thank God for what he did in willingly, willingly giving his son as a bloody sacrifice 
to rescue you. I want you to begin to express thankfulness that the Father and the Son have together, they have united together and sent to you the Holy Spirit to be in you and to be uh, to be with you and to, to, to empower you with the fullness of God. I want you to thank Him for that. And maybe you could begin by even confessing maybe some unbelief uh, to say, well, I, I didn't even really believe that this was... This was something that's true. I, I haven't thought about God being with me as a believer every day. Maybe you can just start with confession and just prepare your hearts to, to celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus. Just take a moment. We're not in any hurry. Thank you, Jesus.